So welcome, Katsira. Oh, Kohenet Katsira. I have to add that because we need to really honor that wonderful title. Tell me, um, before we dive into our topic today, a little bit about your name and what Kohenet Katsira means to you. Sure. Hi, Pleasant. Um, so two parts. Kohenet, as you know, title. Um, Katsira is the name. Um, so I was part of the first cohort of people to receive the title of, of Kohenet yes. through the Kohenet Hebrew Priestess Institute. So it's been over 10 years now that I've uh, had the title and more than almost 15, coming on 15, to, that I started the journey. Um, and Ketsira is actually a name I was given during my training. Um, I know as you've experienced Pleasance and as most folks do as they jump into Kohenet world, names are a really big deal for us collectively. Mm -hmm. And there tends to be a lot of soul searching around <laughs> the name you're called at least within community. And some of us then it becomes outside. And I was in a similar situation to, um, at the time I was like the only one <laughs> and now it's a common theme and I love that I'm not the only one who is like, my name is blah, I don't fucking know. Like every time I didn't know what to do with my name. I had a lot of issues around my name, my, my given name. Um, and uh, actually Jill Hammer, Rav Kohenet Ye'ila, uh, at the end of the first phase of training, so initiation, sat me down and said, I have a gift for you if you want it. I was like, all right, let's do it. What is that? <gasps> and she said, I have a name for you. <sighs> and she offered me the name Kitsira. I probably blubbered and sobbed like a crazy person during like a whole thing, all the feels. And I do not like feels. So like for me, this was super uncomfortable. And I, I walked out of that private meeting and I said, it told everybody and they're like, everyone's like, oh my God, that's your name. Like this isn't a question in anybody's life. And then about four or five years ago, uh, I got really tired of having two names because yeah. one felt like everything, all the baggage of 40 odd years. Yeah. And Ketsira is who I want to be and who I'm trying to be mm. and being called Ketsira, long answer, sorry. Uh, being called Ketsira in all aspects of my life, I can't be spiritually lazy. I mean, I can, but I have to acknowledge it. Like I, it, being called by the name that I was known by for most of my life, uh, I can be spiritually lazy. I can... I cannot be the greatest person, frankly, and I can just do it because that's okay. And it's not okay when someone calls me Katsira to, to, to not try. So there's the long version and what it means in the last second of this. Um, so the simple version of the meaning of the name is harvest, but and it's shifted what it means to me over time. So when I was doing my training, um, like a lot of folks, again, I have food issues. And part of my healing around that, I was doing a lot of work around creating um, seders, hagadot for different holidays and doing a lot of food work. And so I'm pretty sure that's where Jill, why Jill landed on harvest at the time. And then as I looked into the meaning of the name, it's, it's not like fecundity and mother earth and blah, blah, blah. Like it isn't that side. Not there's anything wrong with that. Um, <laughs> uh, it's the active, the action of the cutting of the wheat. So for me, the way I really own it now is it's the work of doing the harvest. 
Um, it's the enjoying of it, but it's somebody who's willing to make hard choices, make hard cuts, and also does that hard work to bring in the harvest. And then sometimes just enjoying it. And if I'm feeling really saucy, then I just say it's the reaper. Do you have people who still call you your old name? Um, yes. Um, there's a few folks, uh, family members who yeah, doesn't say family. <laughs> most have been really good, actually. Yeah. Um, there's some stumbling. Uh, usually it's just because they don't understand it's important. Yeah. And you explain um, it. It, 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 and I've yeah. had a few, like my, my father, uh, who passed away a few years ago, his response was, hell no, I, I gave you your name, blah, blah, blah. I was like, oh, whatever. Yeah. Literally, they picked my name out of a book on the way to the hospital, which I reminded him of because they were, my parents reminded me for years. And I was like, yeah. clearly there's no thought. So get over it. Um, my sister took a little bit because she just did, the understanding of how important it is to me and how, like, to me, if you call me by my old name, you don't see me now. Yeah. Um, so she, she finally, and her nephew, who's 10, she's like, oh, what's he going to do? And I'm like, he's not going to care. He's 10. Just be like, I have a new name. Yeah. So, which is totally true. He was like, hey, yeah. I don't care. And so my sister was able to, by calling me Aunt K. Yeah. For some reason, that started making it something she could do repeatedly without constantly stumbling. And then, yeah, a few other folks, it's just, they're like, oh, it's not just a Facebook thing. Like, yeah. yeah, it's yeah. so powerful in that first retreat. It, it's kind of, it reminds me of like, you don't know what you don't know, or, you know, you're kind of, when you're swimming in something, it's hard really to be critical right about it until you're exposed. So on our first Kohanit retreat, um, when I lived in Israel, my Hebrew teacher called me Naima because that was the translation of pleasant. So there I joined Kohenet and I'm in and I'm like, oh, it's Naima because that's what she called me and going through the whole retreat. And then by the end, there was so much talk about naming and the name your parents give you, the name other people call you, the name you name yourself. And this, I just broke down weeping, being like, I don't want to be pleasant. I'm, I'm more than that. I'm deeper than that. I'm darker than that. I'm more intense than pleasant. Like pleasance is a persona. And you, and if your name is something like pleasance, it's really deep, that kind of identity. So from that moment, kind of like pulling the thread of that whole yarn, you know, and I'm still in the process and have done a wonderful job of uh, kind of stalking all of our leaders, Tema and, and Yaila and you and all my friends who have changed their name and just asking them about it and writing Hebrew and listening for words and um, heard Shamira recently on 1111 and I love it and I'm writing it and using it for myself and in our, in our Kohenet um, cohort and it feels wonderful and she just, gets to embody sort of the darkness also and all the big emotions that I do love um, that I feel like Pleasance there wasn't space for. Um, so I'm excited to see what the, how this will all continue to unfold in many years, months, who knows, lifetimes. <laughs> yeah, I don't, everyday society, like the impact of names isn't something we, yeah. We think about and the persona thing I, i'm with you my so i have my legal name which is still my legal name 
Then I had the nickname, which is actually what I was called my whole life. Like most mm. people didn't even know it wasn't my legal name. Ah, yeah. And the legal name was the biggest persona because I would use that as my professional name. Yes. And, and she's a, she is a, she is a boss cold bitch. Like there was something really hot, like I could wear that like a suit of armor when I needed to. And it was a total persona. The other one was very much me and truly me from, for a long time mm-hmm. until Cohen messed with my life. And yeah. I didn't even change my name when I got married. Yeah. My husband, I was like, Ooh, yeah. so I'm changing my first name now. <laughs> yeah. So I don't want to do that one too. And I got married years ago too. So it was like the whole moment of like, Oh my gosh. That are having a solid discussion of like, yes, our wedding and our marriage was huge is obviously transformative of my life, but there was something about the name that wasn't important to me at that time. Well, and I also think like at this stage, I'm so, I'm so new into this beautiful Kohenet world that, um, there's so much around people pleasing. And, um, you know, I owned a yoga studio, which again, has a certain persona and was a mindfulness teacher, which has a certain persona and a kid's classroom teacher. There's all of this like niceness that was very wrapped up. And I didn't realize how much I was missing bringing forth, you know, I love in our circles when Taya Ma always says rituals speak. Like there's so much power to, um, being quiet, talking less or pleasing less or saying less, you know, just really fully allowing yourself to be. And I think that also happens uh, as you get older, like midlife and in your forties and all of these kind of stages. So at this moment, it feels associated with a certain type of holding space or holding people that I'm ready to kind of really allow more of circular and communal and soulful, um, which means that it gets to be a little bit more fire. Maybe I'll be wearing red lipstick in a year, right? I mean, you never know. Um, But I'm just saying like more of the full presence, more of the wildness, like I feel like that that gets to come in. So again, that's today. We'll see what happens tomorrow. And just allowing yourself to play with that, I think this exploration on naming has actually been really powerful during COVID when there's not a lot going out externally is like, if you have a really rich and deep inner world, you're just over the moon right now. Cause you get all this time to, you know, investigate it, journal, read, write, you know, and really have kind of that sacred time, which leads me actually to why you're here today, which is to talk about this practice that I have been, um, very slowly, very newbie, um, Musar, am I saying it right? Musar, um, the Musar practice. And we're going to go into for this month. And I want you to talk a little bit about this practice, what it's meant to you, how you teach it, all of whatever you want to share about that. But I have, since I took that little workshop with you three months ago, spent, um, really a whole month's time thinking about sacred responsibility first. That's the month that we did then honor, and then now Yura, Yura, which we'll talk about today. Um, but how much you invited us in this class to spend the whole month thinking of this one quality or characteristic. And I could not believe how deep and rich 
and how many synchronicities and connections. And of course it's magical and it's potent because you're really focusing your attention and your energy um, into these teachings. So um, that's why we're here today to talk about this wonderful concept and topic. Do you wanna do a little background first on Musar and sort of the overlay and then get into your on. I'll tell you how, why it, why I asked you to come on and talk about this specifically. Yeah, no, I'd love to. And it's so interesting to me that I, I transitioned from simply student to a student teacher of Musar um, faster than I would have expected. And it's also because the way I, I've done a lot of my practices over the years is instead of, um, I, I tend to, I don't, I spend too much time with people uh, I'm very introverted, and so I'm always looking for ways to not spend a lot of time with people. And so joining a group of some kind for me is not a happy place. Mm -hmm. So what I've done for years is I often publicly share my learning experience. And that's why I often get feedback from other folks, and I, I get that sort of experience, but in a way that feels a lot better for me. Um, and so Musar uh, is roughly a thousand year old Jewish spiritual practice of spiritual ethical refinement. Uh, the word means literally ethics, um, super boring. It's a nice way to make it as boring as possible. Um, and there's a, so much and you, uh, you know, I can, I'm gonna do yeah. this as nicely as I can manage. Um, so the simplest thing and why I think Musar is so powerful is that it affects spiritual change through how you act in the world. So a lot of the books that you'll read are like, this is not self-help. They try to define it by what it's not. And I'm like, eh, it kind of is. And they have they're like, eh, it's not this. I'm like, it kind of is. Stop being so uncomfortable with that concept. <laughs> and, and the biggest difference is a lot of the other sort of self-help systems or spiritual systems are all about your internal state of being. But they forget to mention often that it needs to go out into the world. And then the, the second layer is you're not just doing this for yourself. You're doing this as part of interconnection with the divine, the world around you and all of these pieces. So it isn't, that's why the self-help, they always, uh, the, a lot of teachers get really uncomfortable because it's not just about you. It's about yeah. something much bigger, yeah. but yeah, it's, it's a behavior change system in a lot of ways. And if anyone who studied behavior change, it's so similar to like so many systems of, of psychological behavior change. Um, and yeah, slow and incremental. <laughs> yeah. I just think it was so beautiful, but I think specifically the characteristics that you teach for each month, um, are not ones that I am typically. So because of that background in yoga and sort of Buddhism, they're not the same language and it's not the same qualities or characteristics that we would be talking about in Ayurveda. So that it was to spend a month thinking about honor. Um, I will tell you kind of intimately with everybody, because I share all of this stuff, obviously, is I started some practices and some reading and some work to fully honor myself in ways that I've never done. And I didn't link that until I was journaling about it one morning. I sort of was doing like every other day, check in, where do I notice honor? And eventually over the month, I sort of jaw dropped and I do all that super early in the morning. And I was like, oh, that's what that exploration of like deep healing and deep trauma that, that has been a lot. It's really been really heavy. It's been really intense. 
it's very powerful, but it's about deep honoring of self and story it so that I can be a better community leader, Kohenna in the future, mother, wife, friend, organizer, ritualist, all the things I love to be. There was something, there was a big shadowy thing that was weighing me down. And until I did the month of honor, um, I, I, it was hard to make those connections. So it's been that potent. Um, I, I, I love it. Like this, the const, the way that, that I've been framing Musar and the practice that I've been using and that I've been teaching. Um, so the one thing we didn't say about Musar in case people don't know anything about it, which is understandable, um, is that the, so behavior change. And the idea is that each of us is born with a soul's curriculum and your purpose. So the idea of Musar is not to find like your perfect Zen, your perfect balance with Buddhism. It's to work your soul's curriculum. And so it's yeah. not always good. It doesn't always yeah. feel great. And and the irritating part of all the teachings is like, when you're chilled, it means you're not working hard anymore and you uh, need to get back to work. I'm like, oh God, so tiring. Um, so mm -hmm. there's lists, there are all of these lists of soul yeah. traits. They're called in English, right? The soul traits. And so when I was studying lots of other amazing teachers work, I found myself stuck a few times in most of the teachers have been fairly privileged white men, mm -hmm. Jewish white men, but white men. Mm -hmm. um, and I would read, and especially as you're going back through time and the way things were, I was like, ooh, oh, wow. Why are we not at least mentioning um, how much this soul trait in the way you're teaching it, teacher I'm reading, can be used to actually oppress anyone who's not in power? Mm. And so that was like the first thing I needed to like grapple and start just acknowledging that if you are somebody who is in power, yeah. you can use a yeah. lot of these against somebody. Okay, great. We're acknowledging that. And then there's all the other ways of working it. And just for my brain and how my brain works, the whole idea of jump in and do this very complex um, soul assessment. I was just like, oh, this is so hard. Like, I don't even know where to start. It just felt like such a barrier. So I also like systems, total Virgo. Um, and so, yeah, I started thinking about, it. I love the idea of spiral linear time, uh, which I was first taught by another Kohenet. And we, I know we talk a lot about now in, in Kohenet training. And I was like, okay, wait, we have Torah portions we come back around to and we grapple with in different ways. We have, I can see it in your wall there. We have the Kohenet wheel of the mm -hmm. year. So we have like where each of the pathways of divine as, are ta as taught in Kohenet land in our year. And I love that idea of just coming around like, ooh, can we map a set of soul traits and my systems work together? So I end up with netivot and soul traits that are working in, 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 in dynamic, healthy tension with each other to give me more. So all of my systems are working together. Will you say what yeah. netivot is? For oh, yeah. So, yep. I was trying to avoid that. And I said a minute ago. <laughs> so uh, within Kohenet, um, we are taught a system of divine manifestation through historically how women have shown up through sacred work. And so the word netivot means pathway. Again, direct translation is pathway, but it's pathways of primarily divine femme or divine feminine and how they show up. There's 13 of them in our teachings. 
So I like all, I like things to work together. I, I've gone away from, yeah. uh, I spent years in the pagan community. Most of my, very, yeah. a lot of my friends are eclectic pagans. Yeah. They pick from systems. They're fine with that. Yeah. I, I, I need them to work together. And so, yeah. okay. So that's what I think was shocking to me. Thank you so much for bringing the, of course, the main point of this soul curriculum. So in other interests that I have, other new agey, like consciousness, spirit stuff. I'm obsessed with soul, death, like what happens. And so I read a lot of interesting, different people. I listen to things and have really resonated with the, not necessarily like old soul, new soul, but that there's spectrums and how different um, uh, lifetimes work. And I don't, I have no idea if this is true, not true. These are just things I'm actually deeply interested in and spend hours and hours reading. So I'm reading this other dude who's not Jewish, who has nothing to do with any of this. And I'm like marinating on his topics of past lives and soul lives and all this and thinking that's interesting. And he keeps talking about soul's curriculum and he keeps talking about what you're here for. And that so much of your suffering is when you're not, you know, looking at what you're here for, but look really looking at the lessons and the difficulties to keep moving through and actually keep giving you energy and why so many he says specifically Americans are so depleted and exhausted and sick is because they have, they're not exposed to this or interested to this. So they kind of have lost a lot of their soul's purpose and meaning. And it's not their, it's not like their fault. There's judginess. It's just this kind of idea. And then, so I'm reading that on the side, like background, you know, and then I walk into your class and you're like, oh yes, this is your soul curriculum. You know, here are the books and here's your soul curriculum and here's your soul trait. And I'm like, it's right in my own lineage. How could this even be like, it's, it's so similar, but put just like you said it into a system that has this wisdom. That's part of my own ancestry. That's more interest. That's very interesting to study when it does come from, there's a different power in my body. There's a different sensation in my body when it's from my lineage and not somebody else's, which is what I've started noticing the deeper um, I'm in Kohenet land, which has so many parallels to Ayurveda for the elemental prayer. Um, but in Sanskrit, I love it. It's, but it doesn't feel like mine. It's not this deep resonance. I love it. It's changed my life. But then I say it in Hebrew and I'm like, Oh, here it's like, there's more harmony. So that's been super interesting to do that match work of, um, putting things together. I'm with you on that. No, I'm, I'm totally with you on that. So I am, I can hear my favorite yoga teacher yelling at me if I say she wouldn't yell at me, but she would lecture me for a minute. But like, I've been doing yoga for probably 20 years. I have never worked at like getting good at it. It's just been a foundational like body alignment practice for me. Yeah. Um, and one of the things that's been so interesting is, is that it's like, I see a lot of folks who will talk chakras, right? Yeah. And Ayurveda is amazing. Like it is such an amazing system. Yeah. Really amazing. But they'll talk chakras. And when she would talk chakras, I would be mapping. I'm not even really that into Kabbalistic, but like spherot onto my body. Yeah. And that like chakras, I was like, yep, sure, sure. It's a system. Yeah. It makes sense. It's like, it's why so many people have sort of plucked it out of Hindu and other practices. Yeah. But then you're like, wait, we actually have one probably frankly informed by ancient Indian India practices. Yeah. Um, there was a lot of sharing back then. Uh, yeah. That was, you know, the, the respectful sharing because nobody was in power. 
Um, but that idea of like mapping spherot onto my body, like the, the, the Jewish practice yeah. of body power centers. Um, it's, and again, you do all the same exercises, yeah. you body scan, where is it, where you feel like all the same stuff. It's just slightly, it's a different system. And for me, it keeps it a little bit cl just clearer. Um, and I love, I'm with you, I love yeah. studying practices of other traditions. Some of my greatest teachers yeah. have been outside of Jewish practice. Yeah. And when I go to them, they know that I am not looking, I'm not necessarily take theirs on. I'm always, I'm interested in like the technology of it sometimes mm -hmm. and working with teachers who mm -hmm. there's a fine line between appropriation and spiritual yeah. technology yeah. that can be, it's such a fine line. Um, and it's such a hard one to talk about right now because we're yes. so yeah. thankfully conscious of appropriation the ways we haven't been in the past. And if you're like we are, or I'll speak for myself, where I, I for as long as I've been alive, love to read and write and study and ask questions and think. And so I get, I have been confused in the past five years over my love of um, a lot of Indian and Eastern traditions um, versus my love in general for all things spiritual and groups of people. And so it's just been this wonderful investigation. And I think the reason that it felt really important to kind of bring air to this and share you and these gifts with our community who are not necessarily Jewish at all is that mm -hmm. I hope this is encourages all of us to, to keep asking, keep looking, keep digging in. And we have a number of women in our community who, the more I've been doing my ancestral healing work and ancestor work, I did a lot of stuff with Rabbi Tirza from basically like January to June on, on ancestral healing and the Kabbalah and all of these pieces that have led me more deeply home, which led me to like wake up all night for three nights in a row hearing apply for Kohena, apply for Kohena, apply for Kohena, even when they said it was full, even when they told me, it, you know, they'll get back to me, even when I was like, no, I meant to be in this group. I'm having all night dreams of it um, as I stalked it. Um, but the, the, the ancestral healing that I am thinking about doing, calling in, working with for myself, um, I hope is inspiring all of the members of our community to see what riches and what jewels are in their history. We have a lot of Irish. We have a lot of Scottish. We have a lot of variety of backgrounds um, that have so much to offer spirit and nature and elements. And so that's really the investigation is not trying to make everybody Kohenet or Jewish, um, but for to inspire people that when we are able to dig into our own lineage and our own traditions um, that there's this power. And then that connection, that kind of ding, 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 that happens, that's amazing. So this is an example. So I have been reading, playing big, Tara Sophia's more book since um, I saw her speak the year it came out, 2014. So uh, it's been a minute and saw her. And chapter three is about fear. So I'm going to read this little bit because this relates to why I specifically asked you to come on today. Um, so she says, a few years ago, I came across a teaching that completely changed how I understood fear. I was reading the book, Be Still and Get Going by Rabbi Alan Liu, a brilliant writer and spiritual teacher. He explained that the Hebrew Bible uses two different words for fear. The first word is pachad. Pachad, Rabbi Liu explains, is the fear of projected or imagined things. The fear of the phantom, the fear whose object is imagined. Pakad is the overreactive, irrational fear that stems from worries about what could happen and the worst case scenarios. Most of us are familiar with this. 
And so then he goes into, um, here's when things get fascinating. Rabbi Lou explains in the Hebrew Bible, there's a second word used for fear, yara. Yara has three meanings. The feeling that overcomes us when we inhabit a larger space than we're used to. The feeling we experience when we suddenly come into possession of more energy than we had before. And number three, when we feel, oh, I got the chills, when we feel in the presence of the divine. So this passage, this chapter has been transformational for our community, the little Om community and the Lola community, because we talk about that all the time when someone's hitting, when someone's tapping into or touching or coming close to their own Yara, their own fear. And this month in Musar, when I opened up my study sheet, at, you know, 5 a.m. the first day of Kislev. No, yeah, it's Kislev. I opened and I said, oh, it's Yara. And it feels really scary. And part of it is related just for me personally to that honor practice that I was telling you about. Doing that has set me up to have a really, really um, profound Yara lived experience right now. <laughs> Which theoretically is how the system works, right? <laughs> yeah, like, that was when, oh my God, so much, so much to say back to you on this. That was so amazing to hear. Um, yeah, so that part of the whole idea of, of assigning, right? Because it's, it's a pretty, Actually, I think chutzpah is probably the right word. Let's go to the Yiddish, right? Um, it's pretty ballsy to suddenly make a claim that this soul trait goes with this month. Like I'm putting a pretty intense stake in the ground. Yeah. And when I knew I had the right one is when somebody else would say back to me all the correspondences for that month where they're like, whoa, that's a thing. And then the folks who tried this whole system out for a year with me just to, as we were like mm, see if this works and folks would have that moment of like so you'd be in Cheshvan which we just finished September October um with Kavod which is honor and what was resonating what was hitting them and then suddenly they'd tip over to the next month and they'd hit Kislev which is November December when we do Yira which is awe fear awestruck Etc., and how they play together, right? Like, ideally, they're working as these little units, and I love when it works because I'm like, oh, this, this works, this is great. Um, so, Pachad, you got me thinking on that one because it was part of um, a random passage. I just I was just looking it up too because I, I couldn't remember where it was, but I, and I, the first time I stumbled across it, I was like, wait, what just happened? Because in a lot of Jewish teachings, as I know you know, like the phrase, like, uh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? It's just like a thing we say. <laughs> yeah. And suddenly it breaks one point in Genesis where Jacob says the God of Abraham, great, his grandfather, and the terror of Isaac, Pachad. And immediately, like, I was like, oh, that makes some sense. That whole binding of Isaac nonsense. That doesn't sound so great. That's, it's probably a super different relationship. Um, and then you have terror, which mm -hmm. is, is trauma, yeah. right? Like the trauma of Isaac and that idea with Pachad versus, and I'm sure it was like probably Jill Hammer, uh, one of our teacher 
who first time ever mentioned to me the concept of yira is actually better translated as awe. And then I would see it some other places. And then every time I saw the word fear in anything from the Torah, from Psalms, anywhere in the Tanakh, the, the greater scriptures, I'd go check the Hebrew and I'd look and I'd go, it's mm -hmm. Yah. Mm -hmm. That lazy, one, a lazy translation because Hebrew is so high context, it's really hard. Um, but how different are these texts if what they're saying is being in awe? Yeah, terror and awe. Like, right. Like, it, it is so different. Like, the beginning of, um, I love this quote, the beginning of wisdom is Yira of the divine. Okay, so the beginning of wisdom is fear of the Lord versus the beginning of wisdom is having the good sense to be kind of freaking out because you're standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon when you're talking about the divine with no guardrails. Yeah, but don't you think this is part of like, if everything was written by men and the narrative was men and the narrative was male, that that expression of divine presence flowing through you that is so inherently part of feminine energy like was missing if that ends up being just fear I don't know that's like well, it's also like I'll look at like the reason we use a lot of um uh like monarchy based language right like we, we're not really in a monarchy anymore it's not really a thing most of us want as kings but it was the system and the whole question and you see it every historical piece you read is it better to love or fear the king mm. and half the kings are like mm, just fear me I can control you better if you fear me. Love me, that's fine. But like, I'll take the fear. That's fine. So yeah, it's it's such an interesting and the translation and what is the what is the the goal? What is the yeah. what is the ultimate thing that the translator was looking for? And most well, and I don't think it's on purpose necessarily. But I'm saying if we were all sitting around a table my experience of divinity in my body or presence when the expansion is happening when the soul curriculum is matching the effort and the work it's very nuanced it's very feminine it's very flowy it feels like grief also there's waves of it where it feels like i can do this and then it feels this is too scary there's so much more so i just picture you know it, what might happen if more voices were around the table describing some of these ways that we've perpetuated or translated words that lost so much of their meaning, you know, because when, when we in our community have sat down with that and talked about the expansiveness or the awe, that fear, it gets us excited. It's the energy. It's like tapping into new energy. We're like, I'm in. Yeah. Is it fear that shuts you down or fear yeah. that enlivens you in some way and right, just saying right, fear right to me when I read just fear that's something that shuts you down right yes right like it's a punishment it's uh it's actually in the the things I'm listening to right now my daily uh practice of listening of listening to teachings and that whole idea of yes literal fear of repercussion is a stage of it but it's not considered to be um uh, mm -hmm. as good like that's not where you should stop if that's what you've got, great. But it's considered a a more, I don't like like evolved in this case, but a, a leveled up approach to spirituality that the the fear is not fear of repercussion. It's fear because you're aware of the enormity mm. of this whole yes. thing, right? Yeah. It's not because I'm going to be punished. Yeah. It's, it's 
and I always, I, my easiest likening to it, thing to liken it to is the idea of like standing at the edge of the Grand Canyon for the first time, which I have not done. I've been in some other really amazing places, but haven't <laughs> done Grand Canyon. But that idea, um, mm -hmm. I was in Alaska uh, a mm -hmm. year or so back. Mm -hmm. Sorry, 30 miles okay. north of uh, the Arctic Circle. I was really far north. Mm -hmm. That is an awe-inspiring <laughs> landscape. There is snow, there is ice. It is 9.30 at night and I've never been sun drunk until I was up in Alaska during this time because there was so much sunlight. It never ended. And it, it was just all of you is slightly off. And even the moment I pulled my phone out, I was trying to figure out which way was north because again, it's just the sun is messing with you. And the, the compass didn't work on my phone because I was 30 miles north of the Arctic Circle. That was, there was something very expansive and frightening about I bet, like, I bet, yeah, about yeah. that, <laughs> yeah. that moment. Yeah. So yeah. There there's are so many memories. And now like the richness, I just saw in my head.